And you know, I, I think smaller groups are better just because you can get a conversation going. People feel you know, maybe freer to ask questions and, you know, you get a lot of resistance to some of these things. And I think it's important for employees to be able to vocalize that so you can address their concerns and um, kind of one-on-one to the extent you can. Um, but I, you know, I don't know that training is really any different. I think training every year is important. And when I do my training, I tell folks, you know, Hey, I'm here for two hours or three hours max. And, it's really important that when I leave, that this should just be the start of the conversation. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. During this year's regular session, the Texas legislature passed sweeping changes to sexual, sexual harassment law in the state. Previous Good Morning HR guest, attorney Jim Zeta, calls these changes gold for plaintiffs. Interestingly, these changes went largely under, unnoticed by the business community, and many small businesses are still unprepared for the law, which has already gone into effect effective September 1st. My guest today is longtime friend Julie Ross, a partner with the law firm Ross Ganaway. Julie counsels and, when necessary, defends employers in all areas of employment law. Over the years, she's helped more than one of our clients get their wagon out of the ditch. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Julie. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. So do you think these changes to Texas sexual harassment law are really gold to plaintiffs? I, I do. Um, wow. Unfortunately, from my clients and actually um, our mutual friend Jim Zeta sent me an email a couple of weeks ago, basically thanking me in advance for all this extra business he's going to have as a plaintiff's lawyer suing uh, my employer clients. Um, because he knows that under this law, there's really going to be, I believe, a boom in, in, in cases for sexual harassment. Um, so what's changed here? Well, it's really, this is huge news in, in, in employment law and probably one of the biggest changes I've seen in my career. And there were, I think, almost 650 new Texas laws that went into effect on September 1st. And a handful of those make these big giant changes to the Texas Commission on Human Rights Act or what we call the Texas Labor Code. Um, And that's the version, uh, the Texas version of Title VII. And as of September 1st, the the day we keep mentioning that Texas employees now have more protection and rights under a new sexual harassment law than they did prior, whether it was under Texas law or federal law. And prior to September 1st, the Texas law on sexual harassment was pretty much identical to the federal law. And we all know that Texas has a reputation for being very employer friendly. So this is really a a big surprise because this law is not employer friendly. Um, So now um, as of September 1st, individuals and all Texas employers, even if the employer has only one employee, um, they're now potentially liable for sexual harassment claims. So to kind of sum it up, that, that now the Texas sexual harassment law is much tougher um, than it was before and much more 
employee friendly than even um, federal law is. So like where the Title VII stuff applies to employers with more than 15 employees, this now just applies to and under state law to everybody. And before this law, under state law, you also had to have 15 employees in order to get coverage. And so just for sexual harassment, not for race, religion, color, age, or any of the other protected categories, but for sure for sexual harassment, you can have one employee and you're now covered. Yeesh. Um, So that's, I mean, these are even domestic and household employers that have a problem. It could be at risk there. And you think a lot of these small employers, they don't have an employee handbook. They don't have a sexual harassment policy because, you know, a lot of these are mom and pop. They're just kind of doing their thing, not thinking about employment laws, and they could kind of skate um, under the old version of Texas law and still under federal law, but not anymore. Uh, What about... Uh, one of the things Jim mentioned was some, was something about individual liability for for managers under state law. How does that work now? Well, that's huge. And I've actually been doing a whole lot of training for clients on that already. In the past, under both kind of the way that Texas courts and federal courts looked at Title VII and, and the Texas Labor Code for sexual harassment, if an individual supervisor or an employee was a harasser and the court found that there was sexual harassment. It was the employer who wrote that check, who if there was liability, it was, it landed in the employer's lap. Now under this new law, a supervisor or really anyone, um, it doesn't have to be a supervisor, but anyone um, under this new expanded definition of employer can be um, liable um, and personally, what we call personal or individually liable. So, you know, in the, in the past, an employee could sue both the employer and the employee, but it would be the employer who ended up writing that check. Now, a, a wronged employee can sue both the employer and the individual supervisor who either engaged in harassment or who was aware of the conduct and failed to take immediate action. Wow. Uh, that's going to be it's big. Yeah. That's, and I mean, if the cases are bona fide, maybe that's a, you know, a justified outcome, but I can see, uh, I can see sorting out on the in, you know individual basis, uh, who knew what, when, and who should have taken action in an organization of any size. You could have, a bunch of individual plaintiffs inside that, of an organization so, for one case. That's, that's correct. So under this Texas law, they, they, they've expanded the definition of employer. And it now an employer is a person who employs one or more employees or who acts directly in the interests of an employer in relation to an employee. So it's not just... Um, supervisors and managers, potentially, and, and, and a lot of things you'll read that says this law expands individual liability for supervisors and managers, but I think it's actually far broader than that because you could have someone in payroll who acts directly in the interest of the employer, and that person's not a supervisor. So um, I, I think now even co-workers can be personally liable under, under this new law if they are harassers or if they fail to take appropriate action, potentially. And does a does an employer have any responsibility 
to defend their employees in a case like this if a manager or supervisor or coworkers is named? Well, I think in most cases, kind of as it is under the current law, I mean, employers, they, they want to assert a vigorous defense. So you know, they, they, they don't want their supervisors to have engaged in this conduct. And they're going to argue right. that it was, um, you know, that wasn't, they didn't, the plaintiff didn't, couldn't show that the conduct was unwelcome or, um, you know, that it was offensive to them and so forth. Um, but um, I think I can foresee situations where an employer is going to argue that a supervisor who engaged in her sexual harassment was acting outside the scope and authority of their employment. And um, they're going to kind of maybe divide and conquer. And um, I, I think it puts employers potentially in a, a real bind as versus their supervisors and managers. Yeah. It could make them adversaries in, in the case, right? Exactly. I mean, oh, wow. That's uh, that's not where you want to be as an employer. No, uh, no. So what I've been, you know, in, in this training, I, I've really been doing supervisory training and, and really stressing that, first of all, obviously don't engage in sexual harassment, but that if you are a manager or a supervisor and you're made aware or you observe that this is going on, I mean, your immediate response is to stop the bad conduct if it's happening. You can see or hear it, but really you need to pick up the phone and call HR immediately um, because liability, even if you aren't the harasser, if a supervisor fails to take immediate and appropriate corrective action. And by the way, th that's new terminology, immediate and appropriate corrective action. We're used to prompt remedial action. So the Texas legislature used different terminology under this new sexual harassment law. So we don't really know what's the difference between prompt and immediate, but I would think that immediate means something quicker than prompt and we'll have to wait a while for there to be you know jury awards court decisions to wind their way up through the appellate courts to kind of give us some more guidance but um you know i, I think that probably this, a lot of this is in response to hashtag me too and that you know we say don't do this don't do that and people can still continue to do it so maybe the texas legislature thinks hey you know what if we make people have to get out their own checkbook and write the check that maybe that will finally get people's attention and they'll stop engaging in this kind of conduct. But thinking about your typical employment investigation, especially if you're using a third party outside to come in and do an investigation, uh, prompt could be, yeah, uh, I got this report in my, in the HR office on Monday and, uh, Tuesday morning, we called our outside counsel. We called Julie Ross and, and arranged for her to come in, but she couldn't come in until Thursday to start the investigation. Is that immediate? Does it, is, I mean, is that going to pass that standard? In the real world, I think that that would, if somebody reports on Monday and you're starting an investigation on Thursday, now I think if we need to put somebody on admin leave and, and, and separate these two people, I, I think we need to do those things more immediately. But you know, realistically, when you call an outside investigator, you know, if they can jump on it on Thursday, that's that's pretty good. But a lot of times right. it's, you know, somebody in HR is out, they, they don't get a hold, they, they play some telephone tag and somebody's on vacation or they're involved in some big other thing that they can't get back to. So I, I think our, our bench needs to be deeper. We need to have other people that can we can call um, because I think waiting two weeks 
is not going to be immediate. And, you know, you think about what's going on now with COVID. I mean, how many people are unavailable because of real life things? And are those going to be acceptable to a court that, oh, yeah, we tried. We really tried, but everybody was out with COVID or they had to be quarantined. Or, I mean, does that mean we have to do our investigation um, remotely? Uh, You know, we we just don't know the answer to those things. But, man, it's, um, it's going to be hugely challenging for employers and Again, to, to Jim Zeta's point, you know, it's going to be gold for plaintiffs because those are exactly the kind of issues that we're going to litigate. You know, what is immediate? Is it a big deal that that number, the days to file went from 180 days to 300 does it, for state court? Does that does that really matter much or will that make um, a difference? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I, I think a lot of times what I see is that there's always a dual file, not always, but a dual filing. So if... if uh, an aggrieved employee goes to the EEOC, they'll usually check the box that it's a, a dual filing from both state and, and federal uh, claims. But you know, I, I think a lot of plaintiffs would, and there certainly their attorneys would prefer to be in state court. Um, things aren't thrown out at the summary judgment stage like they are in federal court. Um, I think we think of federal court as perhaps being more favorable to employers overall. So employers prefer to keep things in federal court or remove them to federal court. Um, also, I think with this whole, we, we talked about, you know, immediate action. I think that may end up being a jury question, a fact question. And so again, another reason why these things won't be thrown out on summary judgment. So I think that getting into state court is likely more advantageous from an employee's point of view. And now instead of having 180 days, they have, 300. So before, if they'd missed their 180 days, they were they couldn't follow through in state court, but they could still go to the EEOC. So now they'll have that option to file either or both um, in 300 days. And so considering that term immediate, it's really important, I'd guess, that whoever takes that, that complaint in HR uh, or whoever it is, this is brought to their attention of the hiring, the manager, supervisor, manager, whoever it is, uh, who becomes aware of it needs to start documenting immediately everything that they've done, which is always good, you know, what we always tell them. But it sounds like now, if we've got the standard of immediate, we really need to show, hey, I reached out on this date to do this. I did this. I, I started some remedial action to try and, you know, investigate this and, and take appropriate Exactly. Steps. And we all know just, you know, in real life, whether it's COVID or anything, Supervisors and managers are busy and they have a lot of things that are, they're juggling. And so um, this has got to be something that takes, you know, absolute, absolute priority. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 13 and enter the keyword ROSS. That's R-O-S-S. And as a reminder, over at imperativeinfo.com, we have a number of previously recorded webinars that you can watch and get credit for for free. So visit imperativeinfo.com 
to see what lineup we have for you for recertification eligible free webinars. And now back to my conversation with Julie Ross. Now, when we're talking, we use sexual harassment. Uh, how it sounds obvious because you know it's like pornography. We know it when we see it, uh, or we know it when we look under our teenager's bed. But what define for me what sexual harassment is under the law? Well, the new Texas law uh, defines what is sexual harassment, and, and really, it's the definition that, that we're familiar with under Title Seven, and um, it's you know any unwelcome sexual advance, a request for sexual favor, or any other verbal or physical conduct of a section of a sexual nature. If submission to that conduct is made a term or condition of the employee's employment, or the employee is disciplined um, for submission to or rejection of the conduct, or the conduct unreasonably interferes with the employee's work performance, or the conduct creates a hostile working environment. And we know that to be harassment, sexual harassment in this case, it has to be severe or pervasive. And so it's kind of what's that question? How much her conduct has to be in that pile before it crosses over the line to be unlawful versus just you know, perhaps a violation of policy, but not unlawful. And again, those are the things that, that get litigated all the time. And I think now it's more important than ever for employers to have what I call a zero tolerance policy. They don't ignore this. They don't wait till it gets really bad. Um, if they see it, um, if it's going on in the workplace, if somebody complains about it, they're going to take it seriously and they're going to respond, you know, immediately to the conduct and take the steps um, appropriate and necessary to stop it. Does uh, this statute apply to both public and private employers or is this yes. just a private employer thing? Oh, it does. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, and there's, there's no sovereign immunity for individuals who happen to no, work. And then, for in fact, there's even anything? another, um, another big change. Um, this was under Senate bill 282 that prohibits the use of public funds to settle or pay sexual harassment complaints against public officials or public employees. So, so if you're a public employee, your employer can't come to your rescue and settle a deal and, and say, Hey, we'll pay this out. Just I guess not. Way. Yeah. So I haven't looked into that much, but it's, um, and luckily I haven't had one of those issues pop up yet, but, um, yeah, it really changes the landscape. So let's say I'm an employer and I, I'm smart enough to be carrying, uh, employment practices, liability insurance. Is that if, if I get a claim like this, uh, even under state law, will EPLI tend to cover me? You know, I assume that the, the general answer to that is yes, but sometimes those pol- and every policy is probably a little different. I'm no expert on insurance, but sometimes these policies don't cover intentional acts. So, you know, sometimes we have sexual harassment that wasn't intentional. It was just the stuff was going on versus we have intentional conduct where we're really, you know, trying to exchange sexual favors for, you know, things at work. So I think it's important to pull out that policy and read uh, about what it covers and does it cover individuals. And I mentioned that I've been doing training for um, one of my clients. I've done about 15 sessions of training for this one client. And um, when I have just the supervisors, um, that's the main question that they're asking is, you know, if somebody just comes after me and makes a false claim, you know, I, it means, am I, am I going to have to defend myself? Am I going to have to pay the lawyer? Um, so these questions are 
you know, you, you don't want your employees leave your supervisors leaving in droves. So I think it's really important for employers to to immediately take a look at that. And it may be that they need to enhance their coverage to make sure that in, you know, in, in all likelihood, they may have different attorneys. One attorney group would represent the employer and then you might have a, a different attorney group representing the employee. Um, but you want to make sure that your policy covers that. Well, you and I both sit on a lot of boards and we've served on stuff together. Um, the, uh, you know, I won't serve on a board that doesn't have officers and directors insurance, liability insurance. Uh, I wonder if we're going to see manager supervisor liability insurance programs or something like that pop up. I mean, I'm not sure if these cases begin to be, uh, you know, if they become pretty prolific. I'm not sure that I would want to be a supervisor or manager in a world where anybody can make a claim and, and push for a settlement or I have to go get an attorney and defend it. I mean, it just seems like a really low bar. Well, you think about employers often settle lawsuits because it's just, right. it's a nuisance value. Um, for an individual supervisor, you know, it's going to be expensive to defend, but they may not have the cash just to settle something for a nuisance value. And, you know, it may be that supervisors need to look at their umbrella policies or personal umbrella policies to make sure that, if, you know, that they are sued. But, you know, I think we might see something in, you know, offer letters that go out now to supervisors that, you know, we have all these benefits, including um, this insurance coverage that will protect uh, you. Because um, I agree with you. I, I don't, you know, being a supervisor has enough headaches without, um, you know, being sued and, and have to pay for a personal lawyer and all that to defend me. So in your sexual harassment training, I mean, you mentioned uh, some of the stuff. What is that? What is a good sexual harassment training that that really you know helps prevent uh, you know the abusive bad behavior, uh, but also protects the company? What what are some components to that? What what's the main message you're giving? Well, you know, everything I read says it needs to be you know in person training. Um, and you know, I, I think smaller groups are better just because you can get a conversation going. People feel you know, maybe freer to ask questions and you know, you get a lot of resistance to some of these things. And I think it's important for employees to be able to vocalize that so you can address their concerns and um, kind of one-on-one -on -one to the extent you can. Um, but I, you know, I don't know that training is really any different. I think training every year is important. And when I do my training, I tell folks, you know, hey, I'm here for two hours or three hours max. And it's really important that when I leave, that this should just be the start of the conversation. And supervisors need to be following up at least monthly with their employees. Um, directors need to be following up with supervisors. And it, it just needs to be an ongoing conversation, not a one and done once a year. But I, I think I've really been able to get people's attention, these supervisors, when you talk about personal individual liability. So I find that perhaps are listening a lot more closely than they have in the past, just because of this awareness of this new law that went into effect on September 1st. Well, the idea of individual liability has got to make a, a big difference to, yep. uh, you know, to, at least for the those supervisors who, aren't really intentional in their efforts to sexually harass somebody, but they're just kind of knuckleheads and just kind of like that light feeling in the office and we can joke around and we can all be guys here. Uh, 
after the first one or two of those cases come down where uh, a manager in that kind of environment, you know, not some, not Harvey Weinstein, but somebody who's, who's just, uh, you know, a good old boy uh, takes a hit, then, you know, that that'd probably be a wake up call. Yeah, but I would hope so. But, um, yeah, I would have thought that five or 10 years ago too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, especially still, after, yeah, after the last happens. few years. Yeah. Uh, and it's in, you know, it's in everybody's interest that it stop, obviously, but, um, well, anything else you think, uh, employers ought to do to protect themselves, uh, besides the training? Sure. I mean, I think there are some really easy and obvious ones, you know, pull out your harassment policy and make sure it specifically covers sexual harassment. I know there's still some policies out there that only cover sexual harassment, your harassment and EEO policy. I, I tend to combine those because I like, they have the same reporting requirements. If this is going on, you need to report it to X, Y, or Z person and, and make sure that the policy doesn't say that the employee has to report it to their supervisor. Oftentimes it is the supervisor who is the sexual harasser or the other harasser. And so you want to give the, and also I just don't think that especially lower level supervisors have had adequate training to even recognize potentially when a, a complaint comes in. So I like to limit it really to, you know, somebody in HR, of a department director, maybe some other high level, high ranking person, but review and update that policy and um, have employees acknowledge in writing that they've received it. And um, it, there's some, some tweaking that needs to go on in most policies to make them compliant with this new Texas law. And again, we talked about but these small employers who may never have had a harassment policy. Um, they need to adopt one at least for sexual harassment because um, they're covered for sexual harassment. And I think that the, the, the 15 number still only covers um, for, for sexual harassment. If you're over 15, um, that's when the other protected categories come into play, race, religion, um, national origin, those kinds of things. Um, but those, you know, and a lot of those are going to be owners. And, and a lot of times we see it's the owner, him or herself, who is the harasser. So they need to be aware that um, it may not be the company who's going to, like the Harvey Weinstein company, who is going to write mm -hmm. the check to the aggrieved party, but it could be um, Harvey Weinstein or the owner of the company, him or herself. And I think it's really important that employers do this training and make sure that supervisors and managers are acutely aware that, that these changes um, have gone on and that there may be personal liability. And you may make the training mandatory and make employees sign in, make them print their name, their signature and the date. Um, I still see so many times where an employee will sign something and nobody knows whose signature that is because nobody can read it. And if you're training a hundred people, um, we don't, we don't Lord know. Help you. Yeah. Lord help yeah, you if yeah. it's a medical practice, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. So then I think and you, you kind of mentioned this point, but we need to adopt processes and procedures to make sure that we are responding immediately to these things. If somebody in HR is out of town or if a supervisor in another department is out of town, who is their stand in? Who is fielding these calls and complaints um, that may be coming in so that we are, are excused for not responding promptly is, oh, that person was out of town and nobody checked you know, the email. Um, so we need to have somebody who can jump in and with the investigation, whether it's internal or external, make sure that, you know, we can't wait around for somebody to return our phone call or to make, wait for their, them to be available. We need to have 
you know, two or three people in our Rolodex that we can call to jump in on that. Um, and then, you know, basically make sure that employers know and, and supervisors that they got to stop the conduct. If this stuff's going on and they see it, um, they don't run off and put out the other hot potato thing going on. They, they make sure they stop the comment conduct. And also, I think another way to address this is to make sure that job descriptions for your supervisors um, have one of those essential bullet, the job description bullet points is an essential function of the job to you know, timely and appropriately respond to sexual harassment complaints. So just make that a part of their job description um, across the board so that they recognize that's one um, under their job duties. Cool. Well, that's all the time we have. Uh, but I, unfortunately, I don't doubt that somebody in the near future is going to be Googling, how do I respond to the sexual harassment complaint in my company and come across this podcast. So Julie's contact information will be in the show notes and at Good Morning HR. Uh, so anybody who's listening to this now or in the near future will be able to uh, reach the law firm of Ross Ganaway to get help there. And thank you listeners for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer and Imperatives Marketing Coordinator. Katie Bautista keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you professionally or personally. In the meantime, do good, be well, keep your chin up.